Uh, it's really good to be with you all. Uh, as Chad said, my name is Stephen. Uh, my wife Jessica is here. Uh, we left at home three kids. I have my oldest daughter is 15. Her name's Leah. A middle boy named Judah, he's 13, and a youngest son named Ambrose, and he is eight. Uh, they're all about to change ages in January. We, Jess and I are very structured, so we had kids on January 1st, 13th, and 26th. Um, <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, totally unplanned, uh, just the way, the way it worked out. But it's really good to be with you. I don't think I've ever been here on a Sunday. It's not a Sunday yet, but I will be with you on a Sunday. Uh, but this church plant is very dear to my heart. Um, I was with Chad driving to Edmonton when he said, I'm feeling a call off the island into the Vancouver area. Uh, then sitting with uh, the Don Chorus boys and, and dreaming of, of what could be. And then I, I was blessed to serve on your parish council from afar for, for a number of years. And so this church has been a church that I've prayed for a number of times. Uh, and though I haven't been able to be here. It's, uh, it is very, very dear to my heart. So it's, it's wonderful to be here today. I'm a Leafs fan. I made the mistake yesterday of wearing a Leafs hoodie and Leafs uh, socks. Um, I'm from the Toronto area. Uh, I've been sent as a missionary to the West. Uh, f- funny story, when I moved out West, uh, I had no idea the West hated Ontario. No idea. Just a naive 18-year-old thinking Toronto's the center of Canada, the, Leaf is, the Leafs are Canada's team, that you guys picked the flag after our, our logo, and I was just floored to find out you guys hated us. Uh, I tell all my friends back home, they hate you out here, it's unbelievable. So thank you, Mike, for betraying us, um, and uh, as long as you're not Habs fans, we're good. Anyways, this weekend, we're, we're going to look at the theme of calling uh, and it's calling such a big and, and vast topic to consider. And I think growing up uh, in my life, I grew up in, in charismatic circles uh, before journeying into Anglicanism, and there was always a really significant emphasis on, on calling, whether that be individual callings or, or in our day and age, it was the call, calling of a generation. We were the, the Joshua generation. We were the generation that was going to change the world. And uh, what I found was this concept of, of calling often focused on, on public ministry or, or vocational ministry. Uh, you know, uh, it seemed as though there were, in some ways, tiers of calling. Some who were really gifted, and they would get great callings, and then uh, by default it felt like maybe there were lesser callings on offer as well. But some were called to, to lead the nation. Others were called to, to a city. Others called maybe to pastor a church or become famous worship leaders or itinerant speakers, and, and the rest of us just got to be blessed by their abundant ministry. Uh, and eventually in my own personal journey, I, I, the question of calling began to, to produce significant pain in my heart. I did love the church, and I, I wanted to serve the church, but I actually didn't know what I had to offer. I, I felt like I had really nothing to offer. I wasn't a charismatic speaker or in personality. Uh, I was and am painfully nervous to public speak. Uh, I, I actually hate doing this. Um, <laughs> I have a, a speech impediment. Uh, I, and this isn't why, but I've never preached from the book of Thessalonians because I have to think really hard to say it with a lisp. Thessalonians. So I just go, oh, I just won't preach from that. Other, other, people, <laughs> other people can preach from Thessalonians. Um, I'm not going to walk around 
because I'm scared to leave my, my notes. The, the kid from Peanuts has a security blanket. I have a security bar table. Uh, I feel safe behind it, but I won't walk around. I'm not going to go up and down the aisles. I just didn't have that kind of uh, persona that, that tended to, to be the public face of calling. Uh, I honestly didn't feel particularly anointed. Uh, I felt disqualified due to my sin. Uh, I was an angry young man. Uh, and then largely, I just went, I'm happy to serve, and I'm kind of content being behind the scenes. And, and I think when we think about calling, often it, it gets brought down into a distinctive role or, or an office, and it's based on our recognizable talents, or, or sadly, too often on, on charismatic personalities. And if you're like me, and you, you never felt like you fit into these common categories within church ministry, it's so easy to feel disappointed, isn't it? so easy to get frustrated with the church and with God. And I would ask, why didn't you make me more capable? Why didn't you make me more confident? Why didn't you give me better gifts? Why did you choose them? And why didn't you choose me? I, I, what do I actually have to offer? I, I think because we then focus on such distinct and indiv individualized callings, like I am a priest, that, that is my call. But when we consider the, the broadness of calling, our purpose and, and our destiny if we don't consider those things, we end up missing the beauty of what it means to be a Christian, and even more, the beauty of what it means to be a human, a human that's made in the image and the likeness of God. What does it mean to actually be a human who's made for abundant life? And so over the course of the weekend, in my three sessions, we're going to journey together, and we're going to look broadly at calling. And I believe there's a lot of hope for us in that this weekend. And there's beauty in that. And there's so, so much purpose, probably more than we could, we could imagine. And if we can understand that broad sense of calling, then the, the distinctives and the ways we end up walking that out, the, the, the outworking, they, they become then the outworking of who we are. Because what we know and our identity and what we're founded on is something so much greater and more significant than what we do. So I know for some of you, it's probably going to be helpful to, to know the destination. I'm one of those people the whole time when someone's talking, I'm like, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? And then at the end, I'm like, okay. So I'll, if you're like me, I'll help you out. So tonight, we're going to look at who, who are we? Uh, tomorrow night, we're going to look at who is he? Uh, and number three, how do we live? How do we respond? Uh, and I'm aware that I missed a good alliteration, uh, two W's and an H. Uh, I couldn't figure out how to do another W. And I, I thought for weeks about that. Most of my prep was like, how do I get that last W in there? What? what? Yeah, good call. I actually didn't think about it at all. I don't, I don't focus on alliterations. <laughs> if I didn't think for, for two weeks and come up with that, there's something wrong. Thank you. Let's, let's go to the beginning tonight. Who are we? What are we actually made for? So when we're, we're considering living a life worthy of the gospel, some ways I just want to consider, what is life? What are we created for, and what are we created to be? I know from the gospels, from the scriptures, that God wants us to be fully alive and truly alive in him. He wants you to be fully you, as you were made to be, in the glory of who God created you to be. And the truth is, anything less then me being me and you fully being you is not truly living as God intended. 
but he has called each of us for life, and he has created us for life, and the scriptures promise that he's created us for abundant life. So we'll turn our attention to the Holy Scripture this evening. I want to read two passages. We'll start in Genesis 1, then we'll go to Colossians. So Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We'll go to Colossians 1, and we'll read verses 15 to 20. Trying to turn two sets of pages at once, and my brain does not work that way. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. So to understand the question of what is humanity and what is our purpose, we have to look at two aspects of scripture. One, the incarnation, and two, Adam and Eve. Now, I think often when we're, we're thinking, again, about calling and a context of calling, it can seem really esoteric and, and a little bit mystical. Uh, it's centered around words like anointing, supernatural. You know, we want to use the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, and, of course, none of these things are bad. They're, they're good and they're right and they're biblical. But I think in some ways, uh, a focus on these aspects of our lives tend to, to disconnect the embodied reality of who we are, that we are created, that we are persons, we are people. And perhaps it's this Gnostic, do you guys know what Gnosticism is? It's an ancient heresy where the spiritual is viewed to be greater and better than the physical. And so we have this disembodied Gnostic reality, and it really, we end up missing the baseline of who we are. So we can live with a worldview that's disembodied. We can separate spirit and soul from body. 
supernatural from physical. So our physical bodies then just become a housing for our souls. Our bodies and and physical realities don't matter. What, What really matters is the supernatural and the spiritual. And so this sort of disembodiment, this separation of physical and spiritual is Gnostic. It's, it's an ancient heresy, and it's totally unbiblical. And we're Anglicans, we're sacramentalists, we know this. We know that the physical matters, that the, our physical embodied selves aren't disconnected from the spirituals. Our, our bodies aren't unimportant or disconnected from our calling or our souls but they're, they're fundamental to who we are, and they're fundamental to the purpose that God has for us. The, the incarnation of Jesus shows us the importance of embodiment. It shows us the importance of, of humanity, that Jesus hallows everything that it is to be a human in a real, tangible, and concrete way. It's just absolutely astounding, and because we're, we're heading into Advent, I, I want to think about the incarnation. Let's just consider Jesus. Jesus is, is born of a virgin. God himself, born of a virgin. God held in the womb of Mary. God took on flesh and actually took on flesh. Didn't just, you know, have a, a temporary home in a body. But he became flesh and dwelt among us. God had male reproductive organs. God ate, God drank. As a baby, God needed to be cleaned and fed. He had to learn, he played, he hugged, he got tired. God in the the person of Jesus was present in in a concrete, in an embodied reality. He was present in the lives of sinners. He was present in the lives of the suffering. God embodied in Christ is rejected, beaten, and died. And he didn't die in some unique way that, that wouldn't impact him like the rest of us. The cross wasn't suffering in a unique way that, that we wouldn't have experienced, that, that we would feel pain, but maybe he didn't feel the same kind of pain. He suffered as a human and died. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, not immune to suffering. And gloriously, his human body rose from the grave. His human body tasted resurrected life, and he ascended into heaven. And right now, the God-man, Jesus Christ, in a human body, is seated at the right hand of the fire. The the church fathers would would talk about God as an all-consuming fire, and now humanity has been assumed into the all-consuming fire that is God, and he is there dwelling now. Jesus didn't shed his body at the ascension. Not like one day his body's just going to go away. He is now eternally incarnate. God became flesh and dwelt among us and will remain that way for eternity. And we will dwell with Jesus in the flesh forever. I love thinking about that. What, what was Jesus like? We'll get to know the look on his face. He has unique mannerisms. Think about it. the humanity of Jesus is so beautiful. He has a, a, a unique laugh. He has a unique voice. He has a unique smile. How, how tall is a, a first century Jewish man? I don't know. Maybe Jesus is 5'6. 
Maybe he's 5'8". Maybe he's Alex height. He's, he's a real human. Fully God, but fully man. And we'll get to see the, his unique look on his face. We'll get to hear his unique and beautiful laughter. Jesus becoming man didn't mean he ceased to be God, but he chose to communicate himself. He chose to have a self-manifestation and revelation of love and redemption and sanctification through the incarnation. That God chose to reveal himself in a way that we all could look at him and understand. He chose to use body language to communicate his love. He chose to use presence to communicate his love. The, the incarnation, it balks at the idea that the physical is irrelevant. It balks at the idea that the supernatural is what's most important. But rather, we are whole beings, body, soul, and spirit. Christ is heaven and earth coming together in the incarnation. And we are called as embodied humans to come together with him as whole beings, full beings, not one or the other. So we can't separate this reality when we're considering our calling. It's not just about spiritual gifts, though they're important and they're beautiful. But it's about who are we fully and completely. It's about our present. It's about our, our way of life. Again, as sacramental people, we know that there's an Anglican saying, matter matters. So helpful. Matter matters. Our physical life matters. Our actions matter. Our, our posture matters. It's why we, we raise our hands in worship, because it's a physical act that, that, that shows what's happening within us. It's why we kneel to physically be reverent before the Lord. As a priest, I take confession, and whenever I take it, I try to think about what would the eyes of Jesus look like to that sinner in that moment? Because our physical matters, our actions, our lives. The, the incarnation gives so much dignity to our humanity. As we read earlier in our, our Colossians passage, Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the, the perfect image. Hebrews says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. When we think of image, what do we think of? It's a, a picture. It's a, a static and un unmoving representation of something else. It's motionless. It's two-dimensional. But that's not what Paul is communicating. Jesus is, and I love this quote, Gregory of Nazianzus says that Jesus is the living reproduction of the living one and, and is more exactly alike than any son to his father. He's the living reproduction of the living one and is more exactly alike than any son to his father. My middle son Judah uh, he, unfortunately for him, maybe, looks a lot like me. Uh, there's a picture of me when I was four with my dad, uh, and I, my, my parents sent it to me around the same time that Judah was four, and it would be very difficult to, to tell us apart. He could look at that picture and not remember when Grandpa looked so young and when he, when he sat with Grandpa. Like it, we, are, we are so similar. He, he has a very good idea of what he'll look like at age 38. Uh, and what, he's never told me whether he likes that or not, but he's very aware of it. It's a father-son connection. He looks like me. He represents me. Yet Christ, as the image of the invisible God, is so much closer 
than any son-father connection, that he perfectly reflects the character and the life of the father. When you look at Jesus, you can see and you can know and encounter who God is and what God's like. God made an icon of himself to reveal himself perfectly to the world in his son, Jesus. The the beauty of an icon in the, the Eastern church is that when you look at an icon, you're not just seeing a picture, but you're meant to look through it into something beyond it. You look at a a picture of the crucifixion to participate in the mystery of the crucifixion. So God made an an icon. You could see God in Jesus, but you could also look through him and see what the Father was like. Rather than be known by statues and idols, which was so common in the ancient world, in the perfect time, God took on flesh and lived amongst his people. That he chose to reveal himself. to to bring redemption and salvation and victory over sin and death through his embodied life. So We we want to know what God's like. We want to know his his heart and his character and his nature. We look at the God-man, Jesus Christ. But as we talk about image, and because I read Genesis 1, our mind should think back to Adam and Eve as well. When God created humanity, he created us, our passage says, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And further in Genesis 2-7, it says that once he formed the man of the dust, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. There's a lot happening in these verses, and as I, I did my notes and realized how quickly I'm going to move through things, uh, I thought maybe I should have planned all three sessions around this, but I didn't. So I'm just going to move through things pretty quick and cram a few thoughts in. I hope that's okay. But fundamental to, to Genesis and really fundamental to the entirety of, of Scripture is the creation of humanity in the image of God, where, where other creatures were created according to their kinds Humanity is made in the image and the likeness of God. And scriptures don't actually really tell us a lot about what being made in the image of God means. A lot of it's actually assumed. And there's some, some really great scholars uh, that you could look at, some of them from Regent. Bruce Waltke is one of the, the best scholars you can read on this stuff. But for us contemporary readers, it's really easy to miss what's being communicated. But to ancient readers, they would have known precisely what was happening and what was being said. So let's consider what it means to be made in the image of God tonight. First, an image functions to express more so than to depict. So me as an image bearer doesn't mean that God looks like me. Six feet, arms and legs. That's not what's being communicated. But humanity is a faithful and an adequate representation of God. When we hear about God and think about God, often we ascribe anthropomorphic characters to him, right? So we we ascribe human characteristics to God so we can understand him. But what scholars uh, suggest we do instead is is ascribe theomorphic images to humanity. So we have ears, perhaps, to show that God hears the cry of the afflicted. God gave us eyes so that we can demonstrate to the world that God sees us. So we are made to show and to represent the character and the heart and the nature of God. 
Second, in the ancient world, an image would possess the life and presence of the one being represented. The life and the presence were in an image. And thirdly, and inseparable from the the notion of serving as a representative, the image bearer functions as a ruler in the place of a deity. So in in the ancient world, and and in, I guess I went to India, it's similar as well, uh, temples have images. Every temple will have an idol. Uh, if you remember in, in 1 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 5, uh, when the, the Philistines capture the ark and they bring the ark into their temple, they have the, this, the idol Dagon in there, and then every morning they'd go in and Dagon is on his face before the Ark of the Covenant, and they'd pick him back up, and the next day he's back down until they realize, we've got to get the ark out of here. But within a temple, you'd always find idols or statues. And what's really beautiful is when these idols were done being made, so they would craft this wooden statue, the priests of these uh, ancient cults would go up to the nose of the idol and they would breathe on it. And, and in their mind, when they breathed into the nose of the idol, the life of the god was present in the idol. I don't know if you remember what I read in Genesis 2. You, you can maybe begin to see what's being communicated in these first chapters. God made humanity in his image, and in some ways, he made us to be living icons of his likeness. When you hear the word image, the Hebrew is actually image or icon or even idol. It's not something we want to preach about on a Sunday. But what they believed about idols is what what the scriptures are saying. This is who you are in creation. We were made to be image bearers representations of God and living depictions of his likeness. And just like the priests in the ancient Near East would breathe into into the, the nose of the idols, by the Spirit, God himself breathed into the nose of Adam. He made the man from dust. He composed his body, and then he breathed the life of the living God into him. He breathed his life into humanity so that we could represent him, that we could share his goodness and his grace and his mercy, that we could be image bearers and representations of what God is like in the world. We are called to to be image bearers in the truest sense of living icons, representations of who God is. We live in the temple that is creation. And just as in the the ancient world, they would put the statue in the heart of the temple, God put his living statues, his icons, into the heart of creation. And he breathed his life into us. And he said, go and be like me. This is the call for humanity. to, To carry the presence of God. Wherever the image is, that's where the God is as well. To be a conduit of of his grace, to share in his dominion, to bear his image on earth, to be his representation, to be his likeness, that the world could look at us and say, oh, I know what their God is like. That by our lives, by our actions, the heart and the character and the nature of God would be displayed. It's a call for each of us to perfectly depict him in our lives, in our actions. I think it goes without saying, 
Genesis 3 also happened. (laughs) Genesis 1 and 2 is really idealistic. And sin corrupted the image. Sin tainted the image. God's creation is destroyed and impacted. And so the beauty of the incarnation is in order for restoration, God sees us in our brokenness, in our despair. And he goes, oh, I'll, I'll become the true image. I'll, I'll take on flesh. I'll become like one of them. I'll become the true image and the true human. He's going to live the perfect life that we couldn't live. He's going to image God in the perfect way that we couldn't. He's going to withstand the full weight of evil. He's going to withstand the totality of Satan's temptation. And he's going to remain faithful to God when we couldn't, even to to the point of death on the cross. And as I said, in Christ, we see the the perfect commingling of heaven and earth. In one man, perfectly united, the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity. Jesus is the the perfect image who revealed and lived out the plan and purpose of God for creation and humanity. And Jeff will will know this, but a beautiful John Baer quote is that he revealed what it means to be God and what it means to be human. He reveals the the dignity and the honor of being an image bearer. And he reveals to to each of us the call and the purpose of our rebirth. That what sin tainted, the waters of baptism renew. That we are made new in Christ Jesus. We are reborn to express and to represent God and to share in the work of God. To, like Christ, be, be present as life-giving, God-bearing images in our world. Isn't that good news? The incarnation speaks a, a true word, and Advent's such a good time to talk about this, about the purpose and the call of humanity and the dignity that God has placed in each one of you. Not, not only do we see what God is like in Christ, but we see who we're meant to be, and by the Spirit, who we can become. We get to actually see the way every human is meant to live. To have dominion, not not domination, but to to have dominion in a way that looks like Jesus. And when when I think missionally, our world is so broken. And people are, are so damaged. And every aspect of our secular world is trying to become who we are. Trying to figure out what we're made to be. How we're, we're meant to live. Uh, our world is longing for something beyond who they are. I think we've lost what it means to be image bearers. And as a result, we're, we're malicious. We're consumeristic. We're violent. We're disconnected from who we are. You want to think Gnosticism, our inside reality matters more than our embodied reality. Right? It's how I feel on the inside doesn't match with how I physically was made by God. Something's disconnected. I really think image bearing is one of the forefront topics that needs to happen for mission right now. Because our world doesn't know who they are. They don't know who they were created to be. They were made to be those like God. 
They were made to be people whose the breath of the living God was breathed into and life flows up out of. They were made with inherent dignity and purpose. We were made to be fully alive, and when I look around, we're barely living. We're dead. And who should know this more than the church? Who should embody and, and, and share in this representation more than the church is those of us who have died to sin and have been reborn through the waters of baptism into Christ. So we are renewed and reborn in his image, not our own image. So I ask you guys, do you know who you are? Do you know tonight whose image you actually bear? Do you know whose life was breathed within you. First Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Do you know who you are? Beloved, you are, are reborn. You are renewed in the image of the perfect image. You are one with Christ Jesus. Everything that's true of him in the waters of baptism are given freely to you. His righteousness, his holiness, his purity, his goodness. You're an image bearer of God. You're a a dominion haver, a source of life. You carry the very life of God within you. You're his temple. His life goes wherever you go. So I think before we consider any specific aspect of our calling, we have to ask, how do I even image bear? How do I image God in the world? Am I living as a living representative? When people look at my life and my actions... Can they look through me like an icon and see the glory of God behind me? The answer for me a lot of times is no. Do I actually consider that wherever I am, wherever I'm going, I'm carrying the presence of the living God? It doesn't matter if you're male or female, young, old, abled, disabled, neurotypical, neurodivergent, You image God. You have an inherent dignity and value and purpose in your humanity. Psalms 8 says that we are crowned with glory and honor. Crowned with dignity and purpose to share in the work of God on the earth, to bring his healing, to bring his redemption, to be his presence on earth. Do we truly believe that who we are and what we are made to do and what we are called to do is found solely in the king, in the God that we represent? Everything about your life is meant to represent him on earth. And if we really believe that, and I'm trying my best, maybe we wake up a little bit different every day. We get out of bed a little different to go, oh, I actually bring the presence of God with me today. I actually bear his image. I bear his characteristics and his nature. 
Maybe if we believe that, our, our actions and our, our lives would be far more intentional. Our mission would be far more intentional. We'd also probably go, well, what does it look like? And we'd, we'd fix our eyes on Christ. We'd, we'd study the God-man and go, what does it actually look like to be alive? We'd devote our lives to Christ's likeness. So again, as we consider living in a manner worthy of the gospel, I think it's easy to, to downgrade and degrade our faith down to rules. It's easy to hear that passage and go, am I, am I keeping the rules? Am I not sinning? Am I following the commandments well enough? But it's not about that. It's about coming into harmony with God. Cherith Nordling Fee said it's, it's about correspondence with God. Coming into, in line with true life. Coming into to his, in, 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 his, his vein and flow of life. And when we come into to harmony with God and the life of God, his life then just flows out of us. So it's not about rule following, it's about harmony, it's about correspondence. And sin is getting out of step and out of harmony. So when we come back into following the way of God, it's about actually life blossoming up out of us and and becoming fully alive in him. An interesting study I read, and I I mentioned it to Chad, and he actually knew about it, which is kind of fun. And it's just a neat thing, it doesn't really impact much of what I'm saying, but Apparently, there's a frequency, it was a scientific journal, but there's a frequency of creation, and the hertz in the, the frequency is 432, and all music tuning is 440. And in, in the 1950s, it was standardized that all music tuning would go into 440, and they've done scientific studies on listening to music, any style of music, it's not like one particular style, at 432, which is the, the frequency of creation, and 440, and 440 actually produces anxiety and stress just hearing it. But 432 actually physically changed the blood pressure of people's bodies, and it brought peace and calmness, and it was regardless of, of the, the, the actual style of music. Just fascinating. When your body then, and, and the sounds that you're listening to come in alignment with what's natural, it brings peace. And so when we come in alignment with the way and the life of God, it's actually coming in line with what's natural. Sin is unnatural. So it's not about rule following for the sake of keeping rules, but we bear his image, and so we come in line with his life. And from that, life comes out of us. When we we look to Jesus, we have our our hearts and our minds transfixed on him because in him is life, and we are called to his life. I hold him at an arm's length way too much because I have the gospel backwards. Well, I'm not following the rules good enough. And again, living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel can feel too much like rule following if we miss it. And I know Chad's not missing it. I know the teaching we're getting isn't missing. I'm not trying to say that. But if if our perception is it's about living the right way for the wrong reasons, we're missing it. But it's about coming in line with the life of Jesus. Beloved, be it Langley, any other churches represented, God has a, a noble call and a glorious call for you. And he has a glorious call for your neighbors and your classmates and your workmates. 
He has a glorious call for the people of, of Langley. And God's desire for humanity is to be fully alive in him and, and to have a dream bigger than our own dreams and a dream bigger than just faithfully keeping rules, but instead to bear his image and to be his representation and to have a life founded firmly in his life. He has a dream that you would have a life that is whole and totally satisfying. That each one of you has a call to represent him in the world, to share in his dominion and stewardship, and to reveal his love and his nature and his goodness to the world around you. That you have a call to bring the life of Jesus with you wherever you are. That like the incarnation, your call, I think, more than anything is presence. Wherever he has you right now, your call isn't something that's coming. Your call is right now. It's not about getting a ministry job or a role necessarily, but you being you, fully alive in Jesus, wherever he has you, whether that's at school or at work or at home with kids. God has a call for you to bring life there. You carry his life within you, and you've been made with dignity. And who you are in your humanity, despite all your flaws and imperfection, were known and chosen by God before the foundations of the world. And he calls you and will equip you to know him and to be like him. Here and now is not just a, a pipe dream for one day in the far future but to see in us, in this church, heaven and earth come together in our lives and to live as God on the earth and to participate in his life today. To share that life with everyone God has put around you. And if we aren't alive in him, we don't have the, the life of God within us. We're, we're just simply dead idols. We're dead statues like those in the, the ancient world. Beloved, let's, let's pray tonight that, that we would come to the God of life. We, we would come to the God who once again wants to, to breathe his life afresh into you. That's, we just open our hearts. And just as he did at the creation of man, ask that he would breathe into us his life, that he would fill me that he would give us himself, that he would renew and mold us to share in his image and his likeness. And that when we go from this place, we would go as temples of the Spirit that bring the life and the love and the joy of God to the world around us. And imagine the beauty of a church that gets this and the mission of a church that gets this, that knows who they are in Christ and knows whose image they bear. Let's just take a moment and pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would be with us, that you would renew our minds and our hearts and our, our bodies, that you would reveal to us who you've made us to be, and that you would transform us. Just to invite the Lord to, to, to speak to you. To invite him yourself into your, your life afresh.
I think many of us have, you know, we've had that disembodied view where we don't feel like we're physically actually that important. We feel flawed and broken and maybe disconnected from calling. But I think tonight that God really wants to minister his life to us in a, in a redeeming way that re, reshapes and remolds who we are. And we would know and encounter his spirit. We would have a, a tangible change as he breathes life into us. We ask, Lord, that you would come, your Holy Spirit would come tonight. Many of us are, are broken, tired, and, and believing untrue things about who you've made us to be. We feel unimportant, we feel unqualified, we feel dead, tired, exhausted. Lord, we wait on your spirit because we need your life. We don't need inspiration. We don't need to be excited or hyped up, but we need a, the real life of the living God to do a work in our hearts. Lord Jesus, would you breathe upon this church? Each member here tonight and each person that's at home, Would your spirit fill us afresh?